Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am intending to do in this audio, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. Our topic will be live as you are and remain as you are. Our context is this, in the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talked about marriage, principles of marriage for both Christian couples and for Christians who were in mixed marriages, one spouse being a believer and one spouse being an unbeliever. And so now he continues starting in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 7. However, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Now the situations that Paul is going has referred to and is going to refer to are three. First is marital status, which we covered in the last audio, the previous verses. Should a person remain single or married? For example, if an unbelieving partner is willing to stay with the Christian, Paul says, let him stay or her stay. That means you remain married even though you have an unbelieving partner. Or should you be single? Should you find yourself in the situation of being single when an unbeliever, Lee, unbelieving partner, is not willing to stay with you and he or she leaves? Remain as you are. Stay single. Likewise, he talks about circumcision in the next verse. Circumcision, if you're circumcised, stay circumcised. If you're uncircumcised, stay uncircumcised. Remain as you are. And the third thing he talks about is slavery, or as the NIV study Bible sort of euphemizes it a little bit, your economic and social station in life, where they apply it more broadly. But, they, but particularly, Paul talks about slavery. He says, if you're a slave, stay where you are, unless you have a chance to be free, then, of course, take it. And he says, if you're free, stay as you are, which I think would be obvious. You wouldn't want to go back into slavery. So that's basically the theme of this passage here is is social status is not as important as your spiritual status and what God is doing in your life and amongst your church. Now notice that Paul says, this is what I command in all the churches, living your life in the situation God has assigned to you when God called you into salvation. Stay, you know, Quit trying to think that your social status is more important than your spiritual status. This is what I command in all the churches. Now, this shows that apostolic commands were not mere suggestions. He was serious about it. But now we need to remember that Paul only had moral authority to enforce such commands. He had no legal ecclesiastical leverage to force compliance. And that's why he so often used the terms encourage and urge when he was talking to his, his believers. One time he, came, he said, I came to you as a mother nursing her children. So he was very gentle about his authority, but he had authority. And he said, I expect this to be done in all the churches. And there's a reason for this. If if you end up having social revolutions, people divorcing all over the place or slave revolts or or whatever, you're going to cause a lot of scandal for the gospel. And it's going to hurt the spread of the gospel, which is Paul's number one concern. We go to verse 18. Paul says this, was anyone already circumcised when he was called? When he says called, that means when he was called to become a Christian and he becomes a Christian. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Now, the first strange thing here is why, how could anybody undo his circumcision? Well, actually, it was possible. I'm going to read you a quote from John Gill. Draw on the way you get circumcised again. You draw on the foreskin, as some did in the times of Antiochus, I think that's Antiochus Epiphanes, for fear of him and to carry, to curry favor with him who, it is said, made themselves uncircumcised. So when the, when the, Seleucid, the Seleucid emperor Antiochus Epiphanes came through and started persecuting the Jews, they got scared of Antiochus Epiphanes, and so they 
uncircumcised themselves. They forsook the Holy Covenant. And there were many in the days of Ben Cosba who became uncircumcised by force. They had their foreskins drawn on by the Gentiles against their wills. And when he came to reign, were circumcised again. Now, I can't imagine what this is like. I'm not a doctor. I can't imagine how. But it sounds awful to me. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It is a fact that it was possible by the assistance of art to do this, to uncircumcise somebody. And Celsus himself prescribes the mode. I think that's the second century skeptic, I think, the Celsus he's talking about. By frequent stretching, the circumcised skin could be again so drawn over as to prevent the ancient sign of circumcision from appearing. Some in their zeal against Judaism endeavored to embolish the sign of it in their flesh. It is most evidently against this that the apostle speaks, becoming uncircumcised again. All right, so we assume that can be done, so let's read the verse again. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? That would be a Gentile person. He should not get circumcised. So why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say don't jump from one status to the other? Well, I think this is my opinion. Paul was probably trying to avoid all the Jew-Gentile controversies that could arise over the contentious issue of circumcision. Here's what a Jew might say to a Gentile who is thinking about circumcision or, or thinking about what, not wanting to get circumcised. This is what such a Jew might say. He might say to the Gentile, you must get circumcised in order to get saved. You must get circumcised in order to be a good Christian. Well, no, Paul's saying no. Gentile Christians should not feel Jewish pressure to get circumcised. Now, this was a real problem, as we see in the run-up to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. In Acts 15, I'll read you verses 1, 2, and 24 to give you a feel for this. Some men came down from Judea, that came down to Antioch, which was north of Jerusalem, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, Acts 15. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. Verse 24. Because we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. Well, that's what happens. Controversy. They had the first big church council was over circumcision. Galatians 5.2, Paul says, Take note, I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. This is circumcision for salvation. So Paul says, we're not going to get into that. If a, if a Greek is uncircumcised, let him stay that way. If he was called while uncircumcised, he should not get circumcised. Now, on the other hand, what might a Gentile say to a Jew who wants to undo his circumcision? He might say this, Jewish Christian, you have to destroy your ethnic culture in order to be a Christian. You can't be Jewish anymore, which, of course, is crazy. Of course, you can be Jewish, just like I can be a Southern American. I mean, everybody's got their own culture. Nothing wrong with culture. It's like Chinese people have got Chinese culture, and Jews have got Jewish culture. Culture's interesting. It's, it's, the diversity of culture is a wonderful thing. So Paul doesn't want that to be going on either. We go to verse 19. Paul continues, circumcision does not matter. And uncircumcision does not matter, but keeping God's commands does. Circumcision won't save anyone. That's why it doesn't matter. It was abolished when the law was abolished in Christ, as John Gill parks out. So if it's abolished, why are we worried about it anymore? It neither hinders or forwards the work of grace in a believer. Doesn't help, doesn't hurt. Paul says this clearly in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. 
Galatians 6.15, Paul says this, For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. That's what matters. Now, when Paul said it doesn't matter, he's referring to, to the fact that circumcision does not matter with regard to salvation. However, it might matter with regards to causing someone to stumble, which is a completely different issue. Now, let me give you two instances in Paul's life that show those two different situations. First of all, when circumcision became a matter of salvation, Paul said, uh-uh, we're not going to circumcise. Let's take the situation of Paul and Titus. Galatians 2, 3 says this, But not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Paul is probably referring here to the time when he was in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. This was after the first journey, before the second journey. And he had to go down to the Jerusalem council with Barnabas to deal with the circumcision question. And he took other brothers with him, Acts 15.2, and many people like gotquestions.org, for example, say that those other brothers included Titus. And so when he took Titus down to the Jerusalem council, that was a big issue there. And by golly, he wasn't going to say, I'm going to, Titus, you need to get circumcised. Because if he did that, that would show to the other brothers in Jerusalem, the Judaizing Christians in Jerusalem, that it was necessary to get circumcised in order to get saved, which would be exactly the opposite of the position he was trying to take at the Jerusalem Council. So in that case, when salvation was an issue, when there was a question of whether circumcision was required for salvation, Paul says, no, I'm not going to circumcise anybody because it might, might make it look like circumcision is required for salvation, which it is not. But now, circumcision or not does matter if it causes somebody to stumble. Circumcision doesn't matter at all. Let me back up 1 Corinthians 7:19. Paul says circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Now, he, what he means is if you're going to get saved or not. And so in the situation of Titus, he's saying, look, he doesn't need to be circumcised in order to get saved. That was a matter of salvation. He wasn't going to make circumcision an issue in a matter of salvation. However, he did make circumcision an issue when it came to ministry to the Jews and causing the Jews to stumble. How do we know that? Because in Acts 16.3, we read this. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. This is on the second journey. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul did not want Timothy to be a hindrance in his mission to unsaved Jews. He says, oh, we go around, the Jews are going to say, hey, we know that you've got a Jewish mother. How come you're not circumcised? Or they would say, your father was a Greek, therefore you're a nasty Gentile, and you're out here preaching Jesus, and you're not even circumcised. What kind of a Jesus is that? And Paul's saying, we don't need, we got enough trouble. We don't need... Jews complaining about whether you're circumcised or not. And since circumcision doesn't really matter as far as, your, as far as your salvation, why don't you just go ahead and get circumcised, Timothy, so we don't have so much blowback from the Jews. So the circumstance, the situation does matter. Of course, today it doesn't matter because whether you're circumcised or not does not affect our ability to evangelize anybody. So it's a mood issue today. First Corinthians 7.20 each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Of course, that's the theme of this little section, verses 17 through 24. Remain as you are. Now, of course, he's assuming that one's life situation is an honorable one. I mean, if somebody is saved from being a prostitute, Paul wouldn't say, remain in where you are, prostitute, or if you're a bank robber or whatever else you're into. No, he's assuming that the life situation is an honorable one. Notice how Zacchaeus and Matthew, Levi, 
left the job of tax collector when they were called. That was pretty dishonorable. They left they left their job situation in a hurry, and Paul would probably have agreed with that if he had been saved and around at the time. Again, let's let's review what the three life situations that Paul is calling the Corinthians the Corinthians to remain in. First, your marital status. Second, whether you're circumcised or not. And third, slavery. We'll take up slavery now. We've already taken up marital status and circumcision. Marital status in the last audio. Circumcision just now. Now we'll talk about slavery. 1 Corinthians 7.21. Were you called, i.e. as a Christian, when you got saved, were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. What Paul is saying here is, look, it's not nice being a slave, and I know you don't like it, but, you know, you run away from your master. They're going to put the bloodhounds after you. There's going to be legal situations. There's going to be fears of a slave revolt. And then everybody's going to say that Christianity is a revolutionary cult, and we need to stomp it out, and it's going to call down the authorities on top of the heads of the Christians. So, hey, how about just put up with your situation for the time being? But then he says, if you have a chance to become free, by all means, certainly take the opportunity. This shows that freedom, of course, is better than slavery. If you've got a chance, do it. And I think that's a great application here for modern-day Christians. If you've got a lousy job and you can't get out of it, put up with it. But if you see your way out, get out. Take the opportunity and go. I'll never forget. I was in my early 20s, just graduated from college, and I had a friend who was my age, and he had a horrible job, just horrible. And at prayer meetings, every week he would say, well, God has called me to this. I've just got to suffer. God's got to teach me how to suffer. And I'm thinking, well, maybe God's going to give you the wisdom and the ability to get out of that job. I mean, after all, hey, we live in a capitalist free market society where there's all kind of jobs you can move around to. I mean, if you're a slave, you didn't have that opportunity. But Paul said, if you get the opportunity, take it. Now, by the way, how could a slave get the opportunity? Because a lot of times patricians in the Roman empire would free their slaves just like in the in the antebellum south a lot of times slave owners would free their slaves it was very difficult i remember a professor one time was talking about george washington who treated his slaves very kindly and freed them in his will which was a common practice and this professor said well why didn't he free him earlier what's the matter with the man well you know well it's so easy to sit back 150, 200 years later and look back at somebody's situation and completely not understand it. If George Washington had freed his slaves, where are they going to go? There wasn't exactly a booming market for freed slaves labor. I mean, they had certain skills, but they would have to compete against free white laborers, and they would have to deal with racial prejudice, and there were a lot of free, free, there were free blacks, and there were freed slaves that were working in the cities. That's true, but these were agricultural people freed. George Washington was scared. They were starved to death. That's why he didn't free him. I guess he figured after he died, it'd be somebody else's problem. I don't know. I don't know. But at any rate, Paul says, given the circumstances, take your opportunity to be free. I think in the Roman Empire, you could also save up money and buy yourself out of slavery. I know in the right near where I live, there was a, there's an interesting story. There was a, a freed black guy. He was an ex-slave, and he figured out how to gin cotton so efficiently, started making a lot of money as a, as a freeman. And then he bought a plantation and he himself bought slaves. And what he would do with his money that he made from his plantation and his cotton gin, he would go out and buy his other relatives out of slavery. So, I mean, it was done in the antebellum South too. Sometimes you had a chance to, to be free. So Paul is saying, if you got that kind of chance, take it. By all means, take the opportunity. Now, 
This is what I would like to say to all the skeptics and antichrists out there who gripe that Christianity doesn't explicitly oppose slavery. Well, that's exactly true. There was nothing that, that in the gospel that didn't that advocated slave revolts. But you know, the Bible didn't explicitly prohibit the following either. Matricide's not explicitly explicitly prohibited. Patricide is not explicitly prohibited. Polygamy is not explicitly prohibited. I guess I guess you could say he's the husband of one wife. That might not be a good example, polygamy. Fire ants are not explicitly prohibited. Voting for pro-abortion politicians is not explicitly prohibited. There's a lot of stuff in the Scripture that's bad that's not explicitly prohibited. That doesn't mean that the Scripture thinks it's good. And in fact, you can go to the Scriptures very quickly and see that the New Testament attitude is, even in the Old Testament, the attitude towards slavery is slavery is a bad situation and you need to get if you can get out of it get out of it first corinthians seven twenty three. you were bought at a price do not become slaves of men well see slaves is that's a, a metaphor there slaves of men and that's in our passage here we're going to get to it in a couple of verses paul takes slavery as something bad don't become slaves of men because that's bad he, the implication is leviticus twenty five forty two. they are not to be sold as slaves talking about the hebrews because they are my slaves and i'll that I brought out of the land of Egypt. So, being sold as slaves was considered bad. Leviticus 25:42. Paul tells First Timothy, tells Timothy in First Timothy 1:20, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, he's denouncing a bunch of sins, and one of those sins is kidnapping. Well, kidnappers, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, they were probably slave dealers. I mean, they didn't have rich executives that had daughters that got kidnapped and then ask for ransom to set the daughter free, as we see in the movies so often now. That didn't happen back then, at least not that I know I've ever heard of. But they were slave trading. There were a lot of kidnappers. So I'm, in fact, I think the King James translates that as man-stealers, if I remember correctly. For example, the African tribal leaders who, who defeated another tribe, and then they would find the English or Portuguese slave traders on the coast, and they'd take their captives to the coast, and then the slave traders would go up to the Jamaican Sugar Islands or go up to New England, and the, and the northern ship owners, the capitalists up there, would then take those slaves and sell them to southern plantation owners. Everybody was involved in that. Oh, by the way, it ain't just southern slave owners. Was slave, there was, what, uh, I think 20% of the American of the white people in the American South owned slaves. 80% did not. But those 20% weren't the only people involved in the slave trade. There was a lot of Yankees involved in the slave trade, too, and there was a lot of Africans involved in the slave trade. It was a hideous business. I mean, I, if you read the biography of David Livingston, who spent all of his life trampling through Africa, and he's cited as one of the great Christian missionaries, but he didn't get very many people saved. His main thing that was driving him was to get rid of the Portuguese slave trade. The Portuguese were down there slaving and doing business with the African tribesmen who were selling their fellow Africans into slavery, and Livingston was trying to stomp it out. He never did, but he, he raised a big moral concern about it. Kidnappers, stealing people out of their families and out of their homes. Paul compares that to being sexually immoral and homosexual, liars, perjurers. Now, as a matter of fact, in the South, in the antebellum South, when slavery was still around down here, the average Southerner thought that slave trading was a terrible, nasty business. So they would buy slaves, and they would sell slaves, but by golly, they thought it was horrible to go out and kidnap slaves in the slave trading business. And it was looked down upon, although I guess it was somewhat hypocritical, because, I mean, you can't have slavery if you don't have slave trading, but... It was considered especially obnoxious to do that kind of thing, and 
Paul says kidnapping, man-stealing, slaving is a terrible thing. So where do we get the idea that Scripture is in favor of slavery? It's not. So these skeptics who are out there denouncing Christianity because they think they got a, a hammer they can hammer Christians over the head with do not know what in the Gehenna they're talking about. I mean, the very fact that Paul says you can be free if you can shows that he thinks slavery is a worse condition than freedom. He says in our verse here, he says, if you can become free, by all means, take their opportunity. Well, that means Paul implicitly assumes that being free is better than being a slave. Schaff's famous church history in volume two has an excellent section on how Christianity helped break down slavery in the Roman Empire. That section shows how Christianity completely broke the distinction in worth between master and slave. They, were, they had different social statuses, but their worth before God was equal. I even read somewhere that, that when slaves met with freemen in churches, that the Christians would wear white robes and quit using their names, their fancy Roman names, because that way nobody could tell who was the master and who was the slave. That's pretty cool. It's not a bad idea. Now, when Paul says... If you can become free, by all means, take their opportunity. I'm sure he means if you can become free legally, not by trying to run out and, and escape, because then again, that would bring opprobrium upon the church and would cause all kind of trouble. We go now to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. In other words, if you're a slave when you get to be born again, your civil status is a slave, but your spiritual status is you're the Lord's freedman. So we rejoice in the fact that you're free spiritually, even though you're not free civilly. Likewise, he was called as a free man as Christ's slave. In other words, if you're not a slave when you become a Christian, you are a slave to Christ spiritually. So you're civically free, but spiritually a slave. And the point is, there's not any difference in Christ. The point, the, we're all freedmen in Christ. If you're rich, if you're poor, if you're living in China under the communist government, if you're living in America, in a post-Christian Western culture, wherever you are, you're free. You are the Lord's freedman. You have been freed from your sins. You're no longer subject to this law of sin and death. So this verse shows that spiritual status is much more important than social status. I think of all the pagans I've seen in the university world trying to climb their way to the top. Publish, publish, publish. And all the honors and academic honors and prestige, everybody's trying to be a big shot. And I just looked at it for, for the 30, 40, however long I was in the situation, thinking, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Give me freedom in Christ any day. Now, the fact that if you're called as a free man and you're a Christ slave, that should affect how you, if you're a free man and you happen to own slaves, that should affect how you treat your slaves because... It works like this, since Christ treats his slave so good, Christ's slave being a human master, well then maybe you as a human master, maybe you ought to treat your slave good too. Jesus treats you good, so maybe you ought to treat your slave good too. Paul explicitly said this, here's another good verse for those who think that Christianity sanctions slavery. Ephesians 6, 9, and masters treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Again, you're a slave to God in heaven, and he doesn't favor you over your slave. So you quit threatening your slave. Appeal to them kindly. He says, treat your slaves in the same way. That's referring back to verse 8 in Ephesians 6, where Paul is talking about how the slave should do good things for the master, should work with a good spirit, and so forth. Well, likewise, the master ought to do good things for the slave. Paul says in Colossians 4.1, Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. John Gill elaborates on what those things are, what is right and fair. 
in, in his comments on Ephesians 3.9, this is what Gill says. To instruct them in and use them to religious exercises. Get them used to religious exercises is what he means. To pray with them and for them. To set them good examples. To prevent them falling into bad company and to allow them proper time for religious duties. And with respect to their bodies and outward concerns. To provide sufficient food and proper raiment for them. Or to give them their due wages to take care of them when sick or lame, and show compassion and humanity to them, to encourage those that are prudent, faithful, and laborious, and to correct the disobedient, and expel the incorrigible. Paul says in our verse here in verse 22, If you're called by the Lord as a slave, you're the Lord's freedman. How is that slave free? He's free from the power of sin. Here's some scriptures that show that. John 8:36. Therefore, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. You actually will be free. I don't care if you're a slave or not. First Peter 2.16 is God's slaves. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Live as free people, even though we're slaves. This is great application for those who have bad bosses or bad jobs. And listen, I taught business administration. There's a lot of bad bosses out there, and there's a lot of bad business situations. I've heard thousands of them. I've been in, the, in them themselves, and there's nothing worse. You feel like a, you feel like a slave. You are a slave. And when you're in that situation, you've got to say, Jesus, deliver me. When the time comes for my freedom, show me the way out. But until then, I will work as good as I can. I'll work as, as hard as I can with a, the best attitude that I can. And remember that I'm free from my sin. Help me be free from my sin. Great application there for all you preachers who want to take this verse and use it in an exhortation somewhere. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 7, You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Again, Paul is continuing the slavery analogy. Just as slaves are bought on the, in the slave market, you Christians were bought by Jesus, and the price he paid, of course, was his blood that he shed for you on the cross. That was a high price. Precious blood, as Peter puts it. And since you were bought at a price, do not become slaves of men. In other words, don't let them get you down. Don't let your boss get you down if he's making you a slave. You need to say, oh, I am born again by Jesus Christ, and he treats me like my boss treats me like dirt. doesn't matter. I'm a free man in Christ. This passage could be translated, as Gill and Clark point out, as a rhetorical question. Are you bought with a price from your slavery? Rhetorical question. And, of course, the expected answer is yes. So don't become slaves of men. Either way. Now here, let me read you a bunch of scriptures that shows that Jesus has bought us at a price. This is a fundamental tenet of Christianity. Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a purchase price for a slave. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He bought you with a price. Galatians 3:13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Redemption, of course, means when you pay the price of a slave to the slave owner, and the slave owner then releases the slave. And that would be like a, a family member or something redeems the slave out of, out of slavery. And Jesus redeemed us out of slavery. Bought us out of slavery. Hebrews 9:12. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So he buys us out of slavery eternally, forever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen. First Peter 1.18, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Yet we were redeemed or bought out of slavery with Jesus' blood. Revelation 5.9, 
And they sang a new song. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. And you redeemed people for God. You were slaughtered. You were hung up on a cross and shed your blood. And you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people in Asia. When Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 7:23, do not become slaves of men. This is the NIV study Bible's comment on that. They say, don't let earthly, your earthly authorities obscure the fact that your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. Now notice Paul is writing to people, some of whom were actually slaves. And so he trusts that Jesus will keep a slave from actually being a slave. And, and that's something to remember by those who have oppressive bosses. You don't have to be a slave to anybody. He, Paul tells the slaves not to revolt, but at the same time, he tells them, hey, you're not really slaves. Your master might treat you like a slave, but you ain't. You're not a slave. Now, let me finish up this verse with a quotation from Adam Clark. But slavery and all buying and selling of the bodies and souls of men, no matter what color or complexion, is a high offense against the holy and just God and a gross and unprincipled attack on the liberty and rights of our fellow creatures. I guess what makes this passage hard is because slavery is so bad that when Paul says don't revolt, people say, see there, Christianity's is quietus. It doesn't revolt, doesn't have the idea of social reform. Well, that's actually a lie. That's not true at all. Because when slaves become Christians, they start, they're free inside. And sooner or later, and if masters become Christians, then pretty soon they're going to say, oh, you know, maybe we ought to let these guys loose. And pretty soon, after time goes on and slavery starts dying out. Slavery also has an economic reason for dying out because free market capitalism is much more efficient than slavery, than slave labor. Free labor is much more efficient. I remember there was a guy from England, and I can't remember his name, who came over in the antebellum south to study slavery. He was a capitalist guy, free market guy, during the times that Adam Smith's economic philosophy was taking hold, and he pointed out constantly the inefficiencies in slavery. And I thought to myself, yeah, and the fact that they're burning out the land, the nutrition in the land and the slavery is becoming unprofitable everywhere, except as the... And so what would happen is the, the, the slave owners in the east of the south would sell their slaves to to plantation owners out west where the soil was still rich, but you could just see the soil getting worn out as you went from east to west. It was just a matter of time. Slavery was going to die out. I just finished reading a great history article about how the real the thing that really started the Civil War was not slavery, which would have died out eventually. It died out in the late 1900s, 1800s in South America. Died out in the it died out all over the place. But not in America. We had to get what 600,000 people killed. Was that 600,000 Yankees? I can't remember. Hundreds of thousands of people in a small population were killed in that awful war. But what really started it was the tariff of abominations in 1824 and the fact that when the South left, that would that would deprive the Northerners of huge revenues from all the Southern ports where the tariffs were taken in. They didn't have income tax back then. There was something like a 60-something percent tariff that was placed on goods, which means that Southerners couldn't buy their implements without horrible financial penalties, and they couldn't they couldn't couldn't farm. They couldn't do it. And plus, it hurt the British trade, and so British Britishers had less money to buy their cotton. One thing led to another. We got a civil war. It was one of the greatest tragedies that had ever hit the human race, at least the ever hit the Americans. Let's put it that that way. But at any rate, we go to verse 24, 1 Corinthians 7. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. Again, he summarizes his whole point in this passage. In fact, he repeats verse 20. I think it's word for word, and let me check that. It's not word for word, but it's pretty close. And again, the three situations that Paul was directly dealing with was, number one, should you stay single or should you stay married if you have an unbelieving spouse? Number two, 
Should you be circumcised or uncircumcised? Stay where you are. Number three, are you a slave or are you free? Stay where you are. And ladies and gentlemen, that finishes 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. We will start in the next verse in 1 Corinthians 7 and talk about what are the Corinthians going to do about their unmarried daughters or their virgins. So hope you stay tuned for that discussion and I hope you enjoyed this one.